Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning to all of you who are here. Oh, I cut off your good morning. I'm sorry. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good to be with you. Good to be with you who are joining in online. My name is Emily Morrison. I work on the communications team here at Woodland. And like I said, I am pleased to be here this morning. Before I get into uh, my message, I just want to give you a disclaimer that this might be a little bit of an emotional ride. We're going to go to some dark places. But I'm calling this message Flowers for Footprints. So you know it can't be all bad, right? Hang in there. We're going to have a good ending. So let's get going. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Greg quoted from the W.B. Yeats poem uh, where he said, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. And I feel like that is a very apt description for where we are in our world right now. Things are falling apart. Things cannot hold. The center cannot hold. There's this myth that we have that we're on this steady march of progress, that we're on an incline, that with our technology and with our medicine and science and democracy and if we humans just cooperate and philanthropy and altruism, that we are going to make it. We are climbing, 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 and things are just getting better and better and better. But that's not the true story, is it? The true story is that for every step of progress we make, there's regress. We're constantly being pulled back into things that are getting worse and worse. And right now, it feels like we are in a particularly dark spiral that is pulling us down, that all the good we do just isn't adding up. It feels a lot like uh, this game I used to play when I was a kid. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid in, in Kenya, and every year my family would get up at the crack of dawn and we'd drive 10 hours to um, our favorite place on the coast of Kenya in a city called Mombasa. And uh, we would stay at this little cottage called the Lobster Pot. And probably within the first two days that we were there, um, my brothers and I we would go out onto the beach and we would play a game that we called Save Kajabi. Uh, Kajabi was the name of, of my hometown. And so, oh, look at that cute kid. Aww. Oh, man. She loved the beach. Still does. Wow. Uh, so anyway, we, had, we would make the, the, this tower to represent Kajabi. And so it would be a little tower, and we'd stick a seashell on top, and that was the, the king of Kajabi. We didn't have a king, but, you know, every good, every good sandcastle needs a king. And then we would work to build up all our defenses around this tower in preparation for the tide coming in. So we'd see the tide out there, and we knew it was coming. So we would build this elaborate system of, of trenches and runoffs and walls, and we would dig and dig and dig and build and build and build. And then we'd have this amazing protected fortress defense system. And then the water would start coming in, and it would get closer and closer, and it would fill that first trench. And we'd be bailing, we'd get coconut husks, and we'd be bailing it out with our coconut husks, and, and we'd be trying to force up the glop of sand as it got wet, and, and then we'd have to surrender the first trench because it was overcome. So we'd move back to the second trench, we'd fight, and we'd fight, and we'd fight, and eventually the water's kind of like coming up around the sides. We're still holding it off on the front, but it's coming up around the sides, and we're working and working and working, trying to make this, this last, and then eventually the whole thing, you know, the, the tide overcomes it. Because we're fighting the moon. <laughs> you can't win against the moon, right? 
but we would just emerge and we would be sandy and salty and sweaty and sunburnt and we would just be like exultant in our, in our, in our play. Um, and we were always super proud of the fact that the it was the last thing to go with the tide. Like we held out for that long. And I got to admit that every year I held on to this secret hope that maybe, just maybe this would be the year that saved Kajabi. We actually saved it, but never happened. Like I said, you can't beat, you can't beat the moon. So I feel like right now we are in our version, and actually all of human history, we've been playing this game of, of save the sandcastle, and we just, we can't do it. It's uh, right now, we've got, just think about what we have right now. We've got major wars around the world. We've got millions of people who are displaced and, and refugees. We've got the pandemic, of course, we can't forget that, with more pandemics on the way, I'm sure. We've got uh, this bitter division that we're living in in our country that is turning friends and family against each other. We've got racial injustice that is just killing people. And, and we've got a, a planet that is quickly going to become unlivable as it warms. It's just like, it's terrible. And, and this is the global scale, right? And each of us in our personal lives also have things that are, are crushing us. There are things that each of us is carrying. And I feel like each of us furiously digs trenches and we're bailing water and we're trying to shore up the walls. And some days we, we hold it back for a little bit. Some weeks we have triumphs. We have months where it's like, okay, the, the bad isn't quite, quite there. We're holding it off. But, but you can't beat the tide of evil. The tide of evil will always wash away your sandcastle. Um, a little side note right here. I am trying to win most depressing sermon of the year. So um, if you want to submit a vote for that, just write info at whchurch.org. And my prize will be a rain cloud that I get to carry around with me everywhere I go. So I promise that we can't beat the evil of this world. But I promise that there is good news so to look at that good news, we're going to be reading uh, the passage 1 John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. And we'll read the whole thing, and then we'll go verse by verse. So this is uh, the scripture. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Verse 19 we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So John is telling us, all right, people, we know two things here. One, we belong to God. Two, the world belongs to the enemy. Wherever we start, whatever we're up against, when our day begins, when we go out into the world, whatever the world throws at us, good or bad, our starting point is always we are children of God. We belong to him. This is the core truth, the fundamental that we always come back to. This is where Jesus starts his ministry, right? Where God says, this is my son 
whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. So when we go out into the world, we carry that with us. This is my daughter, this is my son, who I love, with them I am well pleased. We don't take a step in any direction without knowing that in our hearts. This goes back to the uh, GAP acronym that we're using, that G standing for getting our life from Christ. Uh, knowing that I am a child of God is, is, to root, is to get my life from Christ, to root myself in belovedness and belongingness in God. So here John is saying, first things first, everybody just take a deep breath. We belong to God. Hallelujah. Okay, got that? Hang on, hang on. Here's the second thing you need to know. The world belongs to the evil one. Some translations say, uh, under the sway, in the power, under the rule, under the control of the evil one. That is the reality right now. We are at war. We are going about our lives and we have an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy. An enemy who is a roaring lion who fills the world with lies and despair and pain and grief and evil. And all the demons spend all their time turning us away from God and they are as relentless as the tide because the full installation of Jesus' kingdom is still yet to come. Jesus has the final victory, but right now we're living in a resistance movement where the full kingdom is not yet here. We have a bit of woodlandese that we use that we say that you can sum up the whole story of the Bible in two words, love and war. The centrality of love that God has been pursuing us with his covenant love as the, the children's storybook Bible says, the, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. He is coming after us with his love. He is love. We are made for his love. But on the same, on the other hand, there's also war. We are in spiritual warfare. And in a paradoxical way, this is nonviolent. Our, our, our weapons for spiritual warfare are love and forgiveness and humility. But we are up against an enemy. So it's the centrality of love, the reality of war. That is the story of the Bible. And here they are next to each other in one verse. We are the children of God, love. The world is controlled by evil, war. So like a one-two punch. Because as vital as it is to remember that we belong to God, we can't lose sight of this second part. But in a weird way, it can be a, a comfort to us to know that the world is at war, right? It's, that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but it can be really helpful because it helps us overcome this myth that gives us false hope that there, we are uh, constantly moving towards progress. If that is where our hope is coming from, we're going to be perpetually disappointed. So the idea that we are at war can actually be really comforting. And I think that can be summed up really well in this concept called the long defeat, which is something that has haunted me for, for years, but also been really helpful. I first heard this idea of the long defeat when I was reading a biography about the physician, Dr. Paul Farmer. And he did incredible public health work in some of the poorest places in the world. Uh, just, just remarkable work. Um, and, but he was very unique in that he was this extremely talented man um, and, and was working, doing large work in the public health field. But he also was very intent on taking care of individual patients. 
So he would spend hours walking in remote areas to make sure that one of his patients was taking their medication. And there were people who just thought this was crazy. Like, this is a complete and utter waste of time. You're so talented. You're so gifted. Why don't you, you know, go do big things instead of spending you know, three hours walking here, making sure the person is taking their medicine, three hours walking back, and that person's going to die anyway. Like, you could be doing so much more. And so they asked him why. And he said this in, in, the, in a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. He said, I have fought for my whole life a long defeat, and I'm not going to stop just because we keep losing. Now, I actually think sometimes we may win. I don't dislike victory. We want to be on the winning team. But at the risk of turning our backs on the losers, no, it's not worth it. So you fight the long defeat. He wasn't going to focus his life on the wins if it meant turning his back on the losers. He thought his patience were worth fighting for. He thought the long defeat was worth it. Now, this concept didn't come from, from Dr. Farmer. It actually came from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series, which is set in a place called Middle-earth. And uh, the, one of the main characters, his name is Frodo. And there's a scene where he's talking with one of the immortal elves. Her name is Galadriel. And Galadriel is talking to him about all the ages that the elves have witnessed because they've been around since the dawn of time. And she tells him, Frodo, we've, we've seen evil come and we've fought back against it and then we've seen it come back and we've fought against it and it always comes back. But she says to him about the elves, together through ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. Because even if they saw darkness temporarily beaten back only to emerge in another form, they were still going to resist it. They were still going to fight. And Tolkien had this own perspective in his life. He, he wrote this in a letter. He said, I am a Christian and indeed a Roman Catholic, so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains some samples or glimpses of final victory. I read that and a, a light bulb went off in my, in my head. There were words to describe what I was seeing, how, how for all our trying, we still just have death and, and suffering and the end. Our, our planet is on this train that is headed for destruction and all of our technology and advancement and medicine and progress, we can't derail it. We've, we've staved it off some, but it's inevitable. We're, we're hurtling towards death and it's one long defeat. So um, at this point, I'm sure you guys are really glad that you came this morning. It's real chipper. <laughs> Super chipper. So I want to tell you a joke. <clears throat> uh, okay, there's these two guys. They're working for the, for the parks department. And uh, they both got shovels, and they're going along, and the, the first guy, uh, he, he's digging holes. So he's digging, digging, dig, 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 and then he goes on to the next hole, and the, the, guy, the guy behind him is following along, and he takes a shovel, and he takes that dirt, and he fills it in, and the, you know, so it's a dig, fill, dig, fill, dig, fill. Finally, somebody comes up to them, it's like, okay, what are you guys doing? This doesn't make any sense. And the guy who's digging says, oh, yeah, well... You know, usually we're a three-man crew, but the guy who plants the trees called in sick today. <laughs> we live in a world where we're missing the tree planter. We need the tree planter. All our holes keep getting filled in, and it, and it feels, well, defeating, right? 
But none of this is surprising. Jesus told us this is the way that it was going to be. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And then he said, and on top of that, you're going to have more trouble because you're following me. Which I feel like is a really weird pep talk to give. Like, gather everybody around. All right, guys, here's the deal. Everybody gather and together and huddle up, huddle up. This world is going to be a terrible, awful place. It's going to be even worse because you're following me. Okay, ready? Everybody go team. It's just like, wait, what? Of course, that's not all that Jesus says in that moment. He says to them, take heart. I have overcome the world. Yes, Jesus has won the final victory. It's coming. It's just that the reason we're not living in the final victory is that as John tells us here, all the world is under the evil one. While we are intent on good, we have an enemy intent on evil. Because how else do you explain that no matter how hard we try, everything goes bad and everything dies? We fight a long defeat. We do the right things. We keep fighting. We love well. We carry light in the darkness, all while knowing we're still at war. The kingdom is not here. I think that's why the New Testament has so much to say about endurance. Over and over, scripture tells us to persevere, to hold on, to keep going, to be faithful. One of my favorites is, let us not grow weary in doing good. In due season season we shall reap. Jesus also tells us at the very end, I'm coming soon. Which, somebody needs to get the guy an alarm clock because he's moving really slow. (laughs) Come, Jesus. So we have small triumphs, but ultimately the world is under the control of the evil one, which raises the question, if we're called to persevere in a world like this, how do we do that? How do we walk the long defeat? And I think John answers this in the next verse. So verse 20 here. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So first, John tells us there's there's two things we know. You are God's children. The evil one holds the world in sway. And now he says, there's a third thing we also know. Here it is. God's son came to us so that we can know God. And by being in that son, we can be in God who is in eternal life. Being in Jesus while Jesus is in us means that we walk the long defeat, not by ourselves, but in God. And notice something here. It doesn't say that God has eternal life or he gives eternal life. It says he is eternal life and that that eternal life comes by knowing him. This this reminds me of Jesus' prayer uh, to the Father in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is knowing God. So, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. The key to walking the long defeat in a world where the evil one holds power is knowing Jesus. And that doesn't mean knowing about Jesus or just like, knowing Jesus. It means knowing, knowing Jesus. I I remember having conversations with my friends in in high school and, you know, somebody would be like, so do you think he likes me or do you think he like likes me? And there was that distinction, right? 
And, and I feel like, you know, we can be like, do you know Jesus or do you know, know Jesus? Do you love Jesus or do you love, love Jesus? Love, love is a funny thing, right? Um, I'm a super frugal person. I will drive probably a silly amount of time out of my way to try to get a gallon of gas that's three cents cheaper, which probably ends up using more gas than it's worth, but you know, whatever. But when it comes to the people I love, it's all caution to the winds. I, I want to be extravagant and I want to spend money on them. I, I want to do all the things for them and I want to be with them and I want to go all the places. Um, it just, I, I just, oh, I love them and I want, to, I, want, I want to show them that I love them. So a few years ago, I, um, I took my nephew to his first movie. Um, Oh man, I just love that little guy so much. Um, he, was, he was three and he was obsessed with penguins at the time. He had this very elaborate plan for how he was gonna ba- break a penguin out of the Como Zoo. <laughs> like, ah, oh, okay. So there was, this, um, there was this movie that was showing at the theater and it was a documentary about penguins. So um, I took him and uh, I, it was a really big deal, guys, because I think that movie concessions are, are a racket, but I bought him movie concessions because I was so excited. I wanted him to have the whole movie experience. So I paid for the parking and I paid for the movie tickets. It was just really expensive because it was a big theater and I paid for the, the uh, candy and the drinks and everything. But I just, the look on his face and, and, he was three. He's in, I don't think he's going to remember that, but it brought me so much joy. And the thing is, the, the part he loved best was the cup holders. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was fascinated by the cup holders, this whole movie about penguins. And he's just like, wow, Emmy, there's a cup holder here. It's like, okay, I just spent $40 for you to enjoy a cup holder, but I, I would do it again because I love you. I will save three cents on a gallon of gas, but I will spend $40 on a movie for you and I'll buy you popcorn and candy and drinks because I love you. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, but love makes us ridiculous and love makes us reckless. And it's so wonderful loving people, right? I, I, went, I was running errands with a friend of mine last weekend and we were just walking around Home Depot and I was just like, I love this person. Like, we're looking at tiles and I just, I'm just so happy to just be with her. And, and I love sitting with a group of friends and somebody's cracking jokes and I love just watching people riff off each other. There's just this, this beautiful thing and I want, to, I want those people to know that I love them and I would do anything for them. I, I find a gift in a thrift store that I think is like, oh, this is the perfect thing for the per- this person. And I spend overnight shifting that costs more than the thing itself because I can't wait to get it to them. And, and that's just, it's beautiful. I just, I love that love is can be that way. But it's really been bugging me that a lot of times my relationship with Jesus isn't like that. I I have this intensity of love towards the people in my life, but when it comes to Jesus, sometimes it's it's more like he's a, he's a kidney donor. And what I mean by that is um, I imagine that if someone some anonymous person in a different state donated a kidney um, for me, I would be so grateful and I would say, wow, thank you, that's amazing, you saved my life, I'm forever in your debt, Um, wow, I owe you one. Um, And it would be incredible, but there isn't a part of me that would be like, I now must spend all my time with this person, I wanna be with them every day, I wanna 
spend overnight shipping on them. I mean, I probably wouldn't buy them concessions at a movie because they only have one kidney, right? Like, isn't that how kidneys work? Maybe you can't eat candy? I don't know how kidneys work. Um, so I, I think that a lot of times that, that is how I see Jesus. And just to clarify, I'm not saying that our relationship with Jesus should be one wild moment of infatuation after another, right? None of our relationships are that way. That's, that's not realistic. But what I am saying is that if Jesus came so that we can know him and be in him, and this is eternal life, that that kind of connection needs to come from a relationship with someone who is beloved, not someone who's a kidney donor. A a kidney donor solves one problem. I want to thank Dan Kent for pointing this out to me. A kidney donor solves one problem in our life. Jesus is there for our whole lives, for everything. But so often we treat Jesus as if he's just the the one problem solver. Like, oh, thanks for getting me into heaven, Jesus. Really appreciate it. Now I'm going to go do my own thing. But Jesus is, he's he's everything. So we we go through life knowing that Jesus is, is with us. That doesn't mean the circumstances change. It doesn't mean evil disappears. But if you are inside God and God is inside you, how much more can you face the long defeat? How much more can I confront evil with the Holy Spirit comforting me and guiding me? How much more can I face this with Jesus' victory in front of me? As Paul says in Colossians, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. Jesus is our faithful friend. (laughs) It is good news, right? In us, the hope of glory. He's our faithful friend and our companion, and he offers himself, but it doesn't mean anything if we don't actually know him. Okay, so that raises another question. How do we know him? How do we move Jesus from maybe the status of kidney donor, thanks for getting me into heaven, Lord, really appreciate it, to my beloved companion who I want to spend money on at the movies and I want to be running errands with and I want to, I want to, I just, oh, it's so great to be with them. How do we do that? And, and I think that we do it the way we do it with humans, right? Because Jesus is also a human. We do it by spending time with him. I found this uh, 2018 study in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. They have a whole journal for that. And they did this study and found that it took 50 hours to become casual friends with someone, and 90 hours to become real friends, and then 200 hours before you could become close friends. And that wasn't just about proximity, but about this this vulnerability and and this intentionality and this this prioritizing. And, And same with Jesus, I think, we build up our hours with him, right? We, we spend time chatting with him or, or singing or maybe just sitting quietly with him. Uh, some banter is good with Jesus. I have some hilarious inside jokes with Jesus, but you really had to be there, so I won't bother sharing them. Um, and then when we pass those 200 hours, we don't stop that with our friends, right? We, we keep getting to know them. We keep spending time with them. And sometimes, a lot of times, those hours with Jesus are, are following him to some kind of crazy places, right? So Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so we're, we're on a trip. We're following him. We, we follow his lead, his, his call to obey him. Um, 
I have this friend who she likes to imagine starting out her day with Jesus kind of kind of waiting at the door, you know, and he's about to go out the door and he's got his hand on the door frame and he looks back and he says, hey, I'm going to go do some stuff. You want to come with me? And she's like, okay. And sometimes Jesus takes us crazy places. But when you love him, it's worth it, right? Because love makes us a little ridiculous and a little reckless. Now, how do we build that kind of friendship with Jesus, that, that relationship, those 200 hours. Um, I, I think that it's going to be different for each person because we are each unique and none of our friendships with other people in our lives look exactly the same. So, but there are a couple general things I, I wanted to give you guys as ideas for how you can do this. So the, the first one I want to suggest is I was thinking of being God watchers. Um, when I was a kid, we loved bird watching. We had binoculars and we had a, had a book and it was just uh, so fun to try and find the, spot the birds. And I think we can go about our, our daily lives being God watchers, right? Where we're, where's God going to show up in the wild? And uh, we see that in different places for each of us. Um, some people, sometimes I'm listening to a pop song on the radio. I'm like, oh man, that's how Jesus loves me. I know this has nothing to do with God, but that's how Jesus loves me. And, and sometimes we find him in, in fiction when we're reading, or I find Jesus in Doctor Who. He's, he's there, I tell you. Um, some people see him in, in nature when they're out and about. And then the, the Bible, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. So when he provides for us, when he takes care of us, we can see him. So, so get out look, open your eyes. He is there in our daily lives. And the more you practice spotting God, the more you see him. It, it's, it's kind of like a game and it's super rewarding. And then when you do see God show up, tell somebody else about it because it strengthens your faith and it strengthens their faith. Uh, number two, I, I try to find fresh depictions of Jesus. We can get in, in a rut with how we think about Jesus and um, there's a number of ways that we can maybe try and break out of that. One of them is trying out new translations. Um, I, I can be so familiar with the verses on my page that I'm, I'm kind of just reading them and not actually absorbing them. Try a new translation out. There's, there's this wonderful translation called the First Nations Version, and it is an indigenous people's translation of the Bible. And Jesus' name in there is uh, Creator Sets Free. And it's so different reading and thinking of Jesus with that name, with that title. And it's, it's beautiful. Um, there's also, I think, artwork about Jesus can be really, really powerful, especially if it's not a white Jesus. Um, look up depictions of Jesus from Japan and Nigeria and, and sometimes just maybe sit with that. Um, and then the chosen I, I'm not much for promoing TV shows, but this one you got to watch. <laughs> this has changed the way that I see Jesus, and I have cried through every single episode because it makes him more real to me. And when you can find fresh ways to see Jesus, it makes him more real. So get out of your kind of normal way of thinking about Jesus. Find some fresh depictions of him. And then the third thing is practicing imaginative prayer. Uh, and that, to me, just looks like going through daily life and intentionally picturing Jesus there with you. So I like to clear off the front seat of my car and imagine that Jesus is riding shotgun with me. Um, and I sometimes, when I'm having a hard night, I picture him just sitting on the edge of my bed, just rubbing my back. 
And, and even sometimes when I'm in the midst of, of temptation or sinning, sometimes I am being deliberately disobedient, as my parents would say, you are being deliberately disobedient. And I, I try, not always successfully, but sometimes to picture Jesus in that moment too. Like, I know, Lord, I just, I don't, I just want to do this. I know, I know. But somehow bringing him into that is really important. And, and going on walks with Jesus and, and going on errands with Jesus, all, all those things, just he is there. So can you bring him in there in the, in the picture of him? And uh, Greg's book, Seeing is Believing, is a really good resource. There's lots of ways to do imaginative prayer, and he goes into a lot of other things, um, such as revisiting old memories in imaginative prayer. But I'd, a lot of times I think where I'm trying to grow is just bringing Jesus into my everyday, ordinary moments. Uh, there's so many more things you can do. Um, I don't have enough time, but those are, are just three that, were, that, were, that came to me, is, is practicing being God watchers, God spotting, um, and finding fresh depictions of Jesus, and then practicing imaginative prayer. Because the more time we spend with Jesus, the more real he becomes. And the more real he becomes, the more time we want to spend with him, right? And when we spend time with him, his voice becomes more familiar. And then we are more able to obey him. And the more we obey him, the more we trust him because we see how he shows up. And the more we trust him and see him, the more that we love him. And all of that together pulls us inside and creates this anchor inside of us so that while the world is churning and chaotic and feeling like too much, we've got that anchor inside of us. Earlier in the same book in 1 John, 1 John 4.16, John writes, we know and rely on the love God has for us. Knowing and relying on his love is the foundation. That's what keeps us going. So, okay, three, three things that we know. One, we belong to God. Don't step out the door without knowing this first. Two, the world belongs to Satan. We are fighting a long defeat. And three, we know that Jesus has come so that we may know God and be in him. This is how we face an evil world. And now John has one final word. He says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. I really like how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. John knows that we are equipped to live in a very hard world when we are in Jesus and in God, experiencing the wellspring of eternal life. So if we put ourselves in something else or put something else in us, we're in for trouble. Trouble with a capital T. If something else is taking Jesus' place in our hearts, we're being lulled to sleep. We are moving out of that beloved relationship into a, into a distant kidney donor relationship. And we might not even realize it that we're shifting away. And as that relationship fades, we lose hold of that anchor and this hardness of the world comes at us and we start responding to it in, in ways that aren't good. I think there's two different ways for sure that we can respond when we lose being in Jesus. And one of those is just completely giving into the despair of the world. It, it's so dark and so scary and so upsetting and there's just no way out and we start to feel defeated. We, we get in the pit of despair and, and there's no getting out of it. And it's, it's, that, that is one way that we know, okay, I'm feeling utter hopelessness. I've let go of Jesus as my companion. 
Or I think we can also do the like, la, 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 everything's okay, cotton candy, eat, drink, and be merry, it's all good, and finding relief and comfort in unhealthy escapism. So whether we are succumbing to hopelessness or we're looking at reality and running away, we're no longer, we've put something else in our hearts and we're no longer walking the long defeat with Jesus. Because the goal is to to look squarely at the evil of the world with Jesus squarely in our hearts. Um, There were two different Christian theologians who were asked the question, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And I, I love their answers. Uh, Francis Schaeffer said, I'm a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. Jesus lives. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie Newbegin said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I love that they end it with the fact of the resurrected Christ. And I thought, this is the way to go. We don't need to be optimists or pessimists. We certainly don't need to be realists. Those guys are the worst. We need to be resurrectionists. Because resurrectionists walk in the life of Jesus with Jesus' life inside of them. Resurrectionists know that even though the world is under the evil one, they belong to God. Resurrectionists know the best is yet to come. Jesus comes into the death and darkness of the world, and what does he say? He says, come follow me. Follow me in the resurrection way. Be resurrectionists. Or as the poet Wendell Berry so wonderfully put it, practice resurrection. In conclusion, I want to share a picture with you from one of my all-time favorite picture books. It's called uh, Miracle Man by John Hendricks. Y'all, this is an incredible book. This is in my Fresh Depictions of Jesus toolkit. And one of my absolute favorite things in this book is that there are pictures and scenes where as Jesus walks, there's flowers coming up in his footsteps. So in in this picture, he's calling the disciples and they're on the the shore and he's walking and he just is leaving this little trail of wildflowers behind him. There's another scene where Jesus is is healing a leper and it's all gray and dusty and, and you can see that The leper is in ragged clothing and and he's got his bandages and you can see that the dark swirls kind of surrounding him and they're starting to come around Jesus. But then look at Jesus' feet and in that dusty, arid place, what is there? There's flowers, there's life. And then this is the best part. When he heals the leper, flowers come up around the leper. The leper is surrounded by flowers. Because the prophet Isaiah tells us that God is the God who turns parched land into water and wilderness into blossoms and deserts into streams and wastelands into gardens. That is who he is. Because wherever God goes, life goes too, even into the middle of death. When Jesus walked around, he had life like flowers springing up around him. He went into hell and he defeated death because he is the source of life. And life life goes everywhere that Jesus goes. And what's really good news about that is that Jesus says the same thing about us. He says, whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. Guys, we've got living water inside. (laughs) We 
can go into the deserts and bring streams of water. We can bring flowers in our footsteps. So know this, know this, my sisters and brothers. Know that we are children of God. We belong to him. Know that the evil one is running the world right now, but the show's not over. He will not be running it forever. Know that Jesus is not a kidney donor. He is our beloved companion who walks with us. So let us, like Jesus, bring rivers of living water and flowers in our path. Let us persevere in Jesus, not as optimists, not as pessimists, but as resurrectionists. Take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. Amen. Amen. Okay, I've got some reminders for you guys. Um, Musecast is on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Dan and Shauna use their wit and wisdom to break down the, the sermon, go deeper. Um, gathering groups are also available. Um, it's a great way to connect with people and to have discussions about the sermon. If you would like prayer, we have online prayer in Zoom rooms. Um, and then there's also prayer up, up front at, afterwards uh, that you can come for. And then lastly, if you're a parent and you are bringing your kids to Heroes Gate, please make sure that you save a spot for them. Um, and you can find all this information on whchurch.org bulletin. So please go in peace and walk with flowers in your footprints.